Well, again, good morning. If you have a Bible, will you make your way to Acts 15? Acts 15, and we'll be looking at the last five or six verses there. While you're making your way there, I'll tell you a, just a brief, brief story. Before I was called to, uh, to pastor here at Christ Presbyterian, I, I pastored a church in Texas, and that's been coming up on eight years ago now that I left. And, but a few years before I was called to pastor that church, um, they, had, they had a major conflict. They underwent a pretty major ordeal, and it split the church. The associate pastor and one of the elders both had adult sons, and those sons were in business together. And as tends to be the case, the business went sideways. And the sons found themselves in sharp conflict over, over the business, and as you might expect, the fathers both came to the defense of their son. Well, this, this of course, put the associate pastor and the elder in, uh, in sharp conflict themselves. And soon their conflict infected other elders, and then it began to infect the entire church body. And you fast forward a few years, and the church was embroiled in a relational turmoil, and it split. That's what I walked into 18 months later. Surely, there isn't anything uglier than Christian brothers and sisters disagreeing to the point of disunity and ultimate division. Surely, the gospel demands that we as Christians pursue peace and unity. And, and so what do we make when two giants within the early church, Paul and Barnabas, what do we make of it when, when they find themselves in sharp disagreement and eventually part ways? How should we understand their situation, and how should we approach situations that are similar to that within our own lives? And that's what we're going to consider from today's passage. It's a, it's a short passage, but it shows Paul and Barnabas, two titans within the early church, disagreeing and going their own ways. Before we read that, though, I want to give you just a bit of context before we read the passage. It'll, I think, uh, help it make more sense. In chapter 13... Paul and Barnabas were commissioned and sent as missionaries from the church in Antioch, and they set out on what is often called Paul's first missionary journey. And they took with them a young man named John Mark, and John Mark was Barnabas' younger cousin. But sometime early on in that first mission trip, John Mark decided to cut it short and head back to Jerusalem. And Luke, who's, who's writing this uh, letter to Theophilus, who's writing the book of Acts, Luke doesn't tell us why John Mark left. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us why um, he went back to Jerusalem. We're going to ponder that here in just a few minutes. But the point is that early on in their first missionary journey, John Mark bailed, and Paul and Barnabas continued on. Now, I think Jason may have mentioned this in a, a week or two ago, but what, what sometimes gets lost when we're reading Acts is how much time passes in just a short amount of time as you're reading it. When we come to the end of chapter 15 where we are today, and when we launch into chapter 16 next week, Paul has now taken up with Silas, and they are setting out on what is called Paul's second missionary journey. But in the space of a little over two pages, two years have passed. Right? From chapter 13, where Paul and Barnabas are sent out 
from the church in Antioch on this first missionary journey to chapter 16, where they've parted ways, and now Paul and Silas are together, launching out on the second missionary journey. Two years have elapsed. The, the point is this. It's now been, as Luke is recording this, two years since John Mark has left um, since John Marr le left this missionary team, it's been two years since this conflict that centers around him began. And, and a lot can change in two years, can't it? I mean, a lot can change in two years, thank God. But it's a truism of life that frustration and anger can sometimes last a lot longer than two years. Like, I thank God that so much can change in two years, but what we have to understand is that sometimes resentment, anger, frustration, animosity, it can last a lifetime. And so that's where we find ourselves. Two years have passed since John Mark hightailed it, and Paul and Barnabas are about, they're making preparations for a second journey, and that's where we pick up in chapter 15, verse 36. Let's pray, and then we'll read God's word. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever because it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And, and, and what may seem like a, a seemingly insignificant passage, just a few verses uh, which tell us about an interpersonal conflict. Lord, you have preserved and you have inspired and you have given to us one to, to help us see Jesus and to see our need for him and the missionary calling that we're all given, but also perhaps to see how much you value reconciliation and gospel peace and what it looks like when even two stalwarts of the faith don't find themselves living that. And so, God, would you open our eyes and give us receptive hearts and may this word fall upon a receptive heart this morning, including my own. Do this work within us in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 36, this is God's holy word. And after some days, Paul said, that's a bit of an understatement, right? Remember, two years. <laughs> and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." May God write his word upon our hearts. Let me begin this morning with a very simple premise. God highly values peace and unity. He highly values peace and unity, and he detests division and disunity. Colossians 1.20 tells us that God's eternal plan was to send Jesus that God's plan before the foundation of the world was to send Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. That Jesus' that mission is a reconciliation, reclamation, mission of peace and unity. Unity. 
that God's purpose was through Jesus to redeem and restore and to reconcile all things and to make peace through his work on the cross. And the reconciliation and peace that Jesus accomplished for us is meant to extend from us. Let me say that again. That the reconciliation and peace that Jesus accomplished for us is meant to extend from us. Our lives as Christians are meant to be cruciform. They're meant to take the shape of the cross. We have been reconciled to God on this vertical plane. Christ has made peace between us and a holy God. And now we're called to live lives of reconciliation and peace with others on this horizontal plane between, between ourselves and others, especially fellow believers. That's why, that's why every single week in worship, after we have been reminded, after we have been assured of God's pardoning grace, after we have uh, participated in this, in this reminder of what God has done this way, we then pass the peace to one another. We're practicing in those few moments gospel unity. That's God's plan. And what we see here. Is, is ugly. It's heartbreaking because it's all too human, and we don't want to think of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas as, as all that human, but it's all too human. In fact, one author writes, Luke is very honest in allowing us to see the humanity of two men that he greatly admired. And so we might think of it like this. If we were writing a history of the early church, it would have been better to leave this out. These two stalwarts of the face who established the church and who took the gospel uh, at that point literally to the ends of the earth to leave this part out about a petty disagreement. But Luke wants us to see their humanity. Now maybe you're thinking, oh, come on. This, this really wasn't that bad. I mean, God, God used the separation of Paul and Barnabas to now establish two great missionary teams. God caused the gospel to advance because of this little skirmish. It is true that God worked above and beyond this conflict, but there's nothing commendable about what's taking place here. In fact, one author says that this, what's going on here, is an evil separation that yielded good because of divine overruling. There's an, this, is an evil, this is an evil separation that God worked above and beyond by overruling their sin to create good from by taking the gospel to more places. And yet the good outcome does not negate the sinful separation. Before we dive into the actual text, I want to say that there are times, there are times for Christians to part ways. This was not one of those times. There are times, though, when Christians must part ways, when the gospel itself is in jeopardy, then Scripture gives us the freedom and, and perhaps we could even say demands that we confront it and ultimately depart. Now, I, I'm not talking, when I say when the gospel is at stake, I'm not talking um, secondary disagreements over eschatological positions. I'm not talking piddly disagreements over music style. I'm talking about the very heart of the gospel itself. When the gospel has been abandoned, 
You know, it was, the, it was the heart of the gospel that drove Martin Luther to protest and leave the church that he loved and leave behind many relationships. But, but if you remember from your history, Luther didn't want to leave the church. He didn't want to start the Lutherans. He wanted to remain and see the church reformed. His heart was for unity, but the very gospel was at stake, and so he settled for separation. When you think about our own denomination, founded in 1973, the founders of the PCA did not want to go their own way and start a new Reformed and Presbyterian denomination. They wanted the church to reject its liberalism and return to Scripture. And after years, much of the 60s, after nearly a decade of pleading and hard work had failed, only then did they withdraw because they believed the gospel was at stake. And so one reason, and, and I want you to, we, we, we have to um, understand that the Bible does give us warrant for Christians to separate. But one reason is when the gospel itself is in jeopardy. Another reason for, another reason for Christians to separate is division itself. As funny as it sounds, Paul tells us in Titus 3.10 that if a Christian is quarrelsome, if they, if they are divisive, then you're, the elders of the church are to warn them once, and then warn them a second time. And if they continue in their quarrelsome ways, they continue in their divisiveness, then the church is to have nothing to do with them. And, and so it's kind of funny. Do you see how seriously God takes division and disunity? He takes it so seriously that he singles out division and disunity as a reason to separate. In, in other words, God tells us that we are to, to divide ourselves from a divisive person because divisiveness is cancer. But God's heart is that his people would be one. It's what Jesus accomplished and prayed for in the high priestly prayer. And yet, here in this passage, it isn't doctrinal error that led to the separation between Paul and Barnabas. The doctrinal error that we read about in Galatians that's addressed in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, that, that's water under the bridge now. Paul and Barnabas have reconciled on these doctrinal things. It's not doctrinal error that leads to their separation. It's not the presence of a quarrelsome person. It was their own error and their own quarrelsome spirits that got in the way. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from these two giants who in this moment behaved quite small. And so I want to approach this passage as we kind of dig into it just with three things in mind. I want us to consider these three things. First of all, Christian maturity values principles and people, but people principally. Christian, it was a great, I mean, I was proud of myself when I wrote this out this week. <laughs> Christian maturity values principles and people, but people principally. I mentioned a moment ago that, that Luke doesn't tell us why John Mark chose to leave and return to Jerusalem back in chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 13, all it says is, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, now throughout history, Bible scholars have offered all sorts of possible reasons for, for why John Mark left. And, and as you're reading them, some of them are really good guesses. But at the end of the day, that's all they are. They're just guesses, because the Bible doesn't tell us. A, a few weeks ago, um, at our high school camp in Colorado, 
on, uh, on Wednesday, I believe it was, about 15 kids and a handful of adults went on this excruciating hike, uh, hike up Mount Shivano. It's one of Colorado's 14, 14ers, 14,232 feet at the top of this mountain. And, and we, we briefed them, we warned them, we said, it's going to be rough. I mean, if you're coming from Tulsa and you're around five, 600 feet elevation, this is 14,232 feet, this is a big mountain, it's a big hill. We said, hey, climbing this mountain's not like going on a walk in the park. And then as the group, I was not on that, I, was just, I, I went rafting. Yeah. I'm, I let the, the water in the river do the work. Um, they were making their way to the top, and, and many kids couldn't make it and turn back. There's a couple of reasons. Some had no business being there in the first place. Some should have listened to the warnings and not gone. But other, other kids were fine. They were fit. They were prepared. They heard the warnings. But for one reason or another, they just couldn't make it. And, and so I, I believe we do a disservice to John Mark when we assume his motives, when we assume he shouldn't have been there in the first place, that he was unfit, unqualified. I, I, the, the Bible doesn't tell us that. I think we do him a disservice. Perhaps he got ill. He could have gotten word that a family member was ill. He could have returned to care for them. Whatever the reason, it's clear that, that Paul was a man of principle. That Paul was a man of principle. He valued a zealousness and fortitude and resolve. And his thinking was that if John Mark had bailed once, he might bail again. And, and he didn't see a place on this second trip for anything less than complete devotion. Paul's a man of principle. Barnabas, on the other hand, valued the person over principle. After all, the name Barnabas means son of encouragement. That's what his name means. He was an encourager. I, I'm not, I don't mean to imply that Barnabas was not a man of principle. But in weighing this decision, he placed caring for John Mark as a person and, and fostering the growth of this young believer over the need to vindicate his principles. And so who was right? Was Paul right? Was Barnabas right? I, I found this interesting. One, one author says, This section is written in such a way so that we do not assign blame or take sides. That Luke's a physician. He's a careful writer. His, some is, his writing is some of the most careful writings in the New Testament. His gospel, this history... It's written in such a way so that we do not assign blame or take sides. And it goes on to say, it's fair to say that both men were right and both men were wrong. It is right, friends, to have deep abiding principles that guide us. It is right. Th those, those principles are guardrails to help us stay in the lane of faithfulness. It is right to have deep abiding biblically based principles, but it's also right, and dare I say more right, to value people over principles. You know, funny enough, what we're going to see next week, what we're going to see next week in the passage is an example of Paul himself valuing people over principle. N next week, as he takes on Timothy, he actually sets aside a principle that he, he deals with at the Jerusalem Council. The question of circumcision. And he values the people that he's ministering to over a principle that he cherished. 
Now, both men, Paul and Barnabas, were mature Christians at this point, but they were also maturing Christians, meaning God wasn't finished with them yet. And as we grow and mature as Christians, we must value principles and people, but always put people first. And so, so how about you? As I was writing this this week, I, I thought long and hard about this, whether it's religious principles. And again, I'm not talking about the gospel. The gospel is not a principle. It's a power. Romans 1.16 is the power of God unto salvation. It stands above all principles. Whether it's life principles, whether it's political principles and persuasion, do you hold such things firmly, but also in such a way that people recognize that you still value them and love them? Or when people look at you, or more likely read your Facebook post, would they get the impression that you value principles over people? Here's a second consideration. We must learn to disagree without being disagreeable. And it's a learned thing. And for some of it, it's a, it's a lifetime of learning. But we must learn to disagree without being disagreeable. And, and this is where the passage becomes truly heartbreaking. You see, uh, both Paul and Barnabas were right and wrong. The way they viewed the situation and, and the way they looked at it, ball, a part, uh, excuse me, Paul, a man of principle, and Barnabas, a valuer of people, they were both right and wrong, but they were both wrong in the way they approached the situation. So verse 39 says that there arose a sharp disagreement between them. So what leads us to this is pretty straightforward. Barnabas wants to take John Mark on this second journey. Paul says, oh, no way. And there arose a sharp disagreement. And that phrase, that two-word phrase, sharp disagreement, it means to cut as with a sickle or to slice with words. I want you to get that imagery. To cut, to slice, to have with words. This is complete conjecture. Usually that's not a good place to take a sermon. It's complete conjecture, but maybe in the midst of this, what Luke doesn't record is that, is that Paul said, man, son of encouragement. Sure could use a backbone. You know, you're, you're such an encourager, but you have no spine when it comes to your own family. Maybe Barnabas said, you know, Paul, for two years I heard you rambling on as we were walking around about how love is patient and kind and keeps no record of wrongs. Guess those were just words. Again, I don't know what they said. But I do know their words were cutting, they were biting, they were harsh, and their words drove a wedge between them. And the very language of verse 39 says, between them there arose a sharp disagreement. And so again, both are assigned blame here. Friends, fostering unity and working for peace does not mean that we will agree on everything. We will, we, we do, and we will disagree on things. Sometimes they might be major. Most often, they're quite minor. Either way, we will disagree on things. And, and we must learn to not be disagreeable. 
And I, I suspect this has always been a human problem. That Christians or just people disagreeing, but at the same time being disagreeable. Jason and I, a couple weeks ago, we were looking at sort of uh, some membership and attendance numbers, and we were looking at, at um, the current membership numbers of CPC, uh, 300 and something. I bet there are 300 and something different opinions in this room about a particular matter. And we all hold those things and cherish them and think we're right. And that's okay if it's a secondary or tertiary issue. But we must learn and grow to disagree without being disagreeable. And I suspect this has always been a human problem. But I know for certain that that human problem has been exacerbated through social media and blogs. You know, something, I don't know what it is. Something about the distance that a keyboard or smartphone creates gives us permission, we believe, to be jerks. And so what do we do? We, we create blogs. Or we, we take it upon ourselves to change the world one Facebook post at a time. So I have news for you. No one's listening. You see, this has been exacerbated even in the past two years. There's all sorts of studies on this, that there might have been a time through social media when you had an influence, but you have no more influence. You're in an echo chamber. The only people who are reading your blog or listening or, or, or clicking like on your Facebook post are people who already agree with you. I had a gentleman tell me a while back that God had given him a discernment ministry. Sometimes you hear that called um, a watchman ministry. And so I said, well, show me that in the Bible. Like, I don't see that in Paul's list of spiritual gifts. I don't see that as one of the fruits of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. Every time I've heard that, I think it's just code for, I'm going to be a jerk and say what I want to say without concern for the consequences. And I'm going to disagree with just about everyone and use cutting words and then excuse myself with a made-up spiritual gift. That's a rabbit trail. We can disagree, and we will disagree, but we must learn as brothers and sisters in Christ to disagree without being disagreeable. We must not cut and slice one another with our words and, in effect, sever Christ's body. There is a time and a place over primary gospel issues where that must happen, but too often, friends, it's not over a gospel. Can we disagree without being disagreeable? Finally, I, I want to consider what does our Lord require of us when our words do cut? When, when we do drive a wedge, what does the Lord require of us? Well, He requires that we pursue gospel reconciliation at all cost. So our passage doesn't give us the end of the story. Our passage doesn't tell us how all of this unfolds. You see, the plot line continues. And Paul and Silas, they launch off into their second missionary journey. And early on, we'll see next week, we're introduced to another young man, sort of a counterpart to John Mark, named Timothy. And Paul and Barnabas uh, go their separate ways. Barnabas takes John Mark. Paul and Silas choose for themselves Timothy. And, and that's all we get as far as these two divergent storylines until we look elsewhere in Scripture. About six years after this, so let's say this is written, let's, let's just take a pretty 
a, a, a pretty educated guess and say the year 48, uh, A.D. 48, is when this, uh, not, not, not as it was written, that Luke wrote this around 60 A.D., but this event occurs in 48. Around the year 54 A.D., Paul was writing a letter to the Corinthians, his first letter. And he wrote, Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And in the context, even in the verb structure, uh, it seems as if Paul and Barnabas have reconciled, or they're at least now vouching for one another. They're doing their own separate ministry works, but there's been some sort of reconciliation, and they're vouching for one another six years later. Fourteen years later, when Paul was writing to the church in Colossae, he sends greetings from John Mark, who was a fellow prisoner, or at least a comfort and companion to him in prison. And so I want you to get your head around this. That means that while Paul was in prison, John Mark was one of his companions. That means that at some point they had to reconcile in the intervening 14 years. And so we're not given a ton of information, but we can just piece these things together that here they go their own separate ways, but six years later there's some sort of reconciliation that's happened between Paul and Barnabas, and 14 years later Paul has set aside all his animosity towards John Mark, and he's a prison companion. We're called to live cruciform lives. To live lives of reconciliation, peace, and unity. If your faith is in Jesus, you have been reconciled to God vertically. And we are meant to live lives of reconciliation horizontally. First and foremost to our fellow Christians and then to the world. If God's grace manifested in the gospel doesn't translate to, to where we live in relationship to others, then it hasn't truly taken root within. Let, let me say that just a little bit differently. We can't claim to believe and put our hope in the doctrines of grace and not pursue lives of grace and reconciliation. It doesn't work that way. And so perhaps this morning you find yourself um, at odds with a fellow believer. With, with a wedge driven, uh, driven between you and them. We're about to come to a table. What do we call it? Communion. This is a cruciform table. It, it, is, a, it is a covenant renewal of the relationship that's, that Christ established between us and God, but we don't do it alone. We eat and we drink together. So this meal binds us through Christ to God the Father, and it binds us to one another. But we're told in Scripture that if there is a wedge driven, this is a paraphrase, if you have aught with your brother, that you're to leave this offering, you're to leave this sacrifice of worship, and you're to go and be reconciled to them, and then come and do what God calls you to do. That's how, think about that. That's how seriously God takes peace and reconciliation. He says, stop worshiping me and go make it right. There's only, I can't think of anything else in Scripture where God says, stop worshiping me and go do this. But he does when it comes to peace and reconciliation. That God in Christ has made us one. And we're called to live as one. And so let's pray for that sort of heart and temperament. Father, uh, we thank you that you have not 
just simply reconciled us to yourself, but you've reconciled us with one another, that you are making peace by the blood of your cross and reconciling all things, whether in heaven or on earth, and we're part of that all things. Which means that it is an affront to the work of Jesus to claim to be in right relationship with you and not live in right relationship with others. That it is actually quite a major sin to be disagreeable and divisive. Yes, we can disagree. And God, we thank you that uh, unity is not uniformity. That we're all different with different gifts and different perspectives. But we're called to be one. That's why Christ died. And so I pray that as we come to this table, Christ would strengthen us. Strengthen us for the days ahead. Perhaps when we leave this place, we have some work to do. Maybe we need to um, log out of Facebook for six months. Maybe we need to clean up our friend list because it just reminds us of people that we can't stand. Maybe we need to stop trying to change the world one political opinion at a time and instead seek to display the grace and mercy of Jesus in a a gracious and winsome spirit. Whatever it is, God, I pray that you would do that work within us by the power and presence of the Spirit, by this real meal that's gonna sh- that, that we will eat this afternoon. It'll strengthen our bodies, but this strengthens our souls. And so do that for us because we're such a conflicted people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The, the gospel's a complete undoing. It's a complete reversal. In, in, in Christ's gospel work, he turns everything upside down. Think about it. By breaking, he makes one. By being divided and separated from the Father, he brings us to the Father. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and he broke it, and he blessed it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body given for you. When you do this, you do it in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup. It was a common